0: Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association. Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Chris Anderson. He is the founder of 3D Robotics. He was formerly editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, and he is the author of the book, The Long Tail. Chris Anderson has been at the forefront of technology for a good couple of decades. He saw pretty much where the industry has been going uh, long before the, the bulk of the public has figured it out he has tremendous insight into why certain things are as valuable as they are uh, and why certain products, industries, sectors, software, gadgets, et cetera, uh, are capable of achieving uh, mass acceptance. Uh, I I find him to be consistently insightful and forward-looking, and uh, I don't know anybody else who's quite... Had his vantage point throughout the 90s, 2000s, and beyond. He really has seen a lot of things coming uh, before anybody else did. Three uh, D ro- Robotics, as an example, is a started out as a DIY drone company, and they just got so overwhelmed with orders that they pivoted to being a drone manufacturer, and now they're a drone software uh, creator. Really, really fascinating stuff. If you are at all interested in technology drones software uh, this is the sort of conversation that you're gonna really enjoy so with no further ado my interview with Chris Anderson my special guest today is someone I've known for a long time and, and have been a big fan of his work for all these many years his name is Chris Anderson He is the former editor-in-chief at Wired Magazine, worked as a journalist and editor at The Economist for seven years. He is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Long Tail. Presently, he is CEO and founder of 3D Robotics, which is a uh, drone and software company The Long Tail, you probably are familiar with it uh, from either the original Wired article or the book itself. The book won the Loeb Award for the best business book of the year in 2007. He has been named to all manner of lists. One of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, Tech 40, The Most Influential Minds in Technology, Foreign Policies, Global Thinkers. Chris Anderson, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. And let me add, thank you for having us here in the 3D Robotics headquarters.
1: Very it's just great to have you on our coast.
0: It's it's a pleasure out here to be out here and I travel all over and don't frequently say I could I could live in this climate and this is one of those places where yeah, I could live here if I had to, so if I worth, had to adapt.
1: It's worth noting you're in Berkeley, yes. um, which is the nicest part of the Bay Area. Is it? Do you say so, yeah. It's a is.
0: little cooler here than down in Palo Alto. Uh, normally it's a little,
1: well, it's cooler than Palo Alto, but warmer than the city.
0: Okay, there you go. Um, so let's let's jump right into it. You have a really unusual background. You studied quantum mechanics and science journalism. Some people do science and some people do journalism. Not a lot of people do both. How did you find your way to marry those
1: two fields? I didn't actually... Study either of them properly. I, my my degree is in computational physics. And, okay, uh, but it just so happened that um, in writing up my, my resume, I happen take a, have taken a class in science journalism, which at the time seemed the only link I had to journalism. So mm-hmm. I stuck it on my on my resume. But but no, my degree is in computational.
0: So physics. your whole career is a charade.
1: Is that what you're? Uh... It, it is. It is. No, you know, it, it, in its in its big dimensions, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I went from from physics. Um, to ultimately end up working for a fashion company. Um, it's Condé Nast, but you know, uh-huh. fa- fashion advertising is the main revenue. Okay, driver.
0: but they're a little more than a fashion. They, they are. are a, a lot of more
1: fine publications. In, indeed, indeed, and it's not fair to Condé Nast to call it. But but when you're in the you know the elevators of uh, what at the time was Four Times Square and it's mm-hmm. supermodels up and down, you ask yourself, how did I get here? It, I, it is. It, it does require some explaining,
0: to, to say the least. So computational physics. I don't want to jump too far ahead. The idea of how drones operate and and manage to both uh, fly within three-dimensional space as well as do analytics of what's around them, that seems to be like, oh, computational physics Absolutely. to drones, but the middle 20 Precisely. or so years are a little... <laughs> Aberrational. So let's start with with the Economist. You were there for seven years, mm. a writer and editor. Is that right?
1: Um, yeah, I, I ran various bureaus, but it was mostly writing, as the case for most people. The Economist. I mean, the the you're absolutely right. There's a straight line from from physics to to, to drones and measuring the world and analyzing mm-hmm. it, etc. The wiggly in between bits, which consists of a about thirty years. Um, had to do, um, it's kind of an interesting path. So physics in the late 80s, early 90s, which is when I was there, um, we were all inspired by the great physicists of the 20th century, the you know the yeah the the Fermis Richard Feynman and Richard and... Feynman, etc. Um, and that really was the the noble science. Unfortunately, um, the quest of physics was to get closer and closer to the Big Bang, mm-hmm. you know, to understand the origins of the universe. And closer to the Big Bang means higher energies, which means mm-hmm. bigger particle accelerators, which means more money. And eventually, we just scaled out of government budgets, and so there were no more particle accelerators in the U.S. that were going to be built, and so, and so it was, you had two choices. You could either like wait in line for you know, the LHC CERN and in, CERN in uh, Switzerland, wait in line for like 20 years and maybe your experiment would be, <laughs> would be a success and maybe it wouldn't. Or you could take the skills that you learned in physics and apply them elsewhere. So the skills were, when you think about it, the internet was invented in the mm-hmm. physics world to connect labs. The web was invented at CERN, a physics laboratory, and the first big data was physics data, supercomputers mm-hmm. using accelerator data. And so you really only had uh, so most people sort of said, well what do I got here? I got um, I got you know statistical skills. I can crunch big data. I'll go to Wall Street to be a quant. Right. That was the natural one. A lot of people went went and did that. Go um, for the money. Go for go for the money. Some of us said, well, okay, yeah, we can do that, but there's also this Internet thing, which just seems kind of interesting. At the time it was really just a network to connect you know, scientific laboratories. Well, the
0: original DARPA concept was, hey, we have to have the capacity to send launch instructions in the event that we're hit first.
1: Well, so, well, well sh- sure. But I mean, at the time, this was a little bit past then, the time sure. the internet was largely to connect supercomputer centers mm-hmm. for things like climate modeling. You know, mm-hmm. uh, this is the part where Al Gore, you know, invented it, um, which, uh-huh. you know, he actually had a lot. He didn't invent it, but he had a lot to do with, um, with encouraging its growth during that era. Um, so, so those of us, you know, who were sitting there, say, "Well, I don't want to go to Wall Street, but I do have some some internet skills. What's the internet good for?" Along comes this magazine in 1993 called Wired, mm-hmm. with like fluorescent ink and saying, "Hey, this internet thing is going to be big one day. One day, <laughs> it's not just you know a, a, a tool to connect labs. It's going to be cultural revolution, etc." And so I decided to make my career the internet. And the first step, you know, there was I went I was working for scientific journals as an editor, and then The Economist asked me to take over. Uh, um, their technology beat and i said sure but i'd like to cover the internet and they're like well i don't know whatever whatever you say what do you need and i'm like i need an internet connection <laughs> and I, and this you know, is I'll 92
0: 93. No,
1: this was uh, 93 yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: and and at what point did you end up leaving so the economist you weren't necessarily covering covering Economics and business.
1: I was I was originally, and then I went uh, to China to mm-hmm. uh, to run the bureau there, and um, was in China from um, just before the handover of Hong Kong. Uh-huh. In um, I guess that was ninety seven. To after WTO in 2001. Mm-hmm. Fascinating time to be in China. I got to sort of see China imagine. emerge. And that was in New York where you and I spent mm-hmm. uh, time together and then was recruited from there to by Condé Nast to run Wired. Um, so it was only, were, the only publication I would leave The Economist for.
0: You were in The Economist New York Bureau, mm-hmm. and that's what led to Condé Nast and Wired. So you take over Wired, which was, it was always a good magazine, but it was kind of a, a, a
1: hodgepodge for a while. Well, it was it was um, you know it, it basically created this sort of um, aesthetic and philosophical foundations of the internet's going to be big. It's like the mm-hmm. biggest thing since electricity. That was kind of the wired concept. Right. Um, I took over in two thousand and one, so this is after the stock after the dot com bust, and six weeks before September eleventh. So
0: excellent timing.
1: Um, uh, well, so you know, at that point, everyone was dismissing the internet right. as 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 a fraud, or at
0: least hyped. or at least wildly overhyped. But that's what I mean by excellent timing. Absolutely, you come in with very low expectations. People aren't torturing you to. How, why don't we have any results this quarter?
1: Precisely. So so I was betting that the internet was real and that the dot com bust was about Wall Street, not about Silicon Valley. Um, and, and as you say, when you when you buy at the bottom, you get three wonderful things. Um, first of all, your failures are are are, disca- are cloaked by the marketplace's. Failures. Oh, it's you,
0: just everybody's. Failing. You can't it's succeed not in that in
1: right. that in that uh, environment. Uh, secondly, um, a lot of talent had come to Silicon Valley during the the boom, and they were available, so I was able to hire really good people on the cheap. On the cheap. Um, well.
0: They were available.
1: (laughs) And thirdly, um, my (laughs) year-on-years. I had a really low baseline. Exactly. The next year, I was just going to blow through my numbers. So
0: so before we move too forward past 2001, having lived through the 90s and all the enthusiasm and all the excitement and then the collapse, Mm. how did that color your view of technology and the internet?
1: Or did it? Um, It was... was, um, I think I was... My um, my faith in technology was completely unshaken. Um, you know, I, as a physicist, you basically think in terms of, like, you know, what's, like, fundamental mm-hmm. in the world. And there's something about the Internet that just struck me as fundamental. It struck me as in the same category uh, as democracy and evolution. It's kind of one of these... One of these truisms, and um, as a matter of fact, when I was at the Economist, my first—they have these things called surveys, which are these big, like, like mm-hmm. sixteen-page special features. It's the only time you get to use your name as an author,
0: and um, which is, by the way, is unique in the world of journalism. W- w- pretty much unique, exactly. I mean, Where this, there's this, this, no byline. You write an article, and it's by the Economist. The notion of the collective voice, yeah. Right.
1: yeah. Um, so my, my first uh, survey on the internet um, was entitled "The Accidental Superhighway," mm-hmm. um, and the notion of things happening, you know, of, uh, by accident suggests that really they're happening by nature. There's that 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 you know this this emerged. It was an emergent organically. Of the universe, exactly. And it, it, the fact that it was emergent rather than synthetic meant that it was more real.
0: Huh. That, that that's quite fascinating. The the. Thing I I thought you were heading towards and I, I think I'm mangling this. Is it Met Metcalf's law that does the each node multiplies mm-hmm. the value? That quickly became obvious that Every time you add another user to the internet, the value increased exponentially. Absolutely. So
1: that's the value element, but the the governance structure, the fact that it was not centrally controlled. I mean, there's some trivial central controls. Well, like, you have like ICANN, and you have a whole lot yeah, th- of but domain that's, but that's, issues. Yeah, but that's 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 the very lowest level. But in terms of the content itself, the fact mm-hmm. that it was the fact that it is you know truly you know democratic, a meritocratic um, uh, system, um, that is that is actually the more important rule. Um, and that's why we work so hard to protect the openness of the internet is because the emergent properties come from that
0: openness. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you kind of answered already, so I want to expand on it. You've been quite astute at forecasting, let's call it near trends, extrapolating from just very nascent things, not well-formed. Uh, Well, at this point, I think we all can agree mobile is going to be big one day. Mm. (laughs) But on the other hand, you were looking at things that were – the trend wasn't clear. It wasn't, let's just extrapolate this to infinity. You identified seedlings and said, this is going to be significant. Is it simply the organic nature of it that caught your eye? Or how did you – how were you able to say, oh, there's huge potential here and we're just – you know, the people, who, especially after the crash, people said, ah, you know, it was too good to be true. It, this mm. is just overhyped. What made you turn around and say, no, this is substantial. Forget the finance part of it. The technology part of it is real.
1: Yeah, I mean, things like the long tail or or drones, which I would do right now. So basically, it's, there's two elements. One of them is that it's just exciting, you know, it's just shiny and exciting and, you know, my, you know, my heart sings and all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's necessary but not sufficient. Um, what's sufficient is that it also has to align with my worldview of what, what works, this sort of notion of openness or emergence or, or you know, the, the, the fact that it benefits from democratization. Um, so when you, so like my first book, uh, The Long Tail, I mean, the, the, or an article as well, I mean, the way that happened was not, it wasn't an idea. Um, what happened is that I'm sitting here. You know, it's it's 2001, 2002. Um, I'm uh, I'm a physicist in Silicon Valley, right? I'm now in, running a magazine. I'm not really trained as a journalist. I'm not. You know, I was I had a staff full of brilliant narrative storytellers, but I was just kind of a nerd. You know, with, with number cruncher geek so I was dad. Like, indeed, indeed. So I needed some numbers to crunch. And I was, I was thinking, you know, I was like, okay, look, I believe that this is the, the, you know, the seeds of the 21st century being formed in the Googles and Amazons and Ebays around me. And I'll bet that in those servers is the data that can illustrate what the 21st century looks like. Let's just ask them for the data. And...
0: and- has anybody previously asked
1: them? Hey, we'd like to see your data. No, and well, no, because I mean, because typically the academics weren't looking at that because that was considered sort of cultural and trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the companies themselves were just starting to bring up the data scientists and the economists it was quite early, and um, and and journalists just typically weren't weren't quantitative, no weren't mathy. Exactly. So there was a brief window where if you if you asked nicely, mm-hmm. and you know signed some NDAs, et cetera, that you could actually get that data. And so I, I, I got the data from places like it was Rhapsody. I think it was my it was it was music service was uh-huh. original one. But I also got sort of scrubbed data from um, from eBay and, and, and elsewhere, and just started analyzing it. In the long tail just popped right out of it it was clearly obvious that there was a kind of a power law distribution and that the the size of the tail you know depending on how you split it was about the size of the head which suggested that there was a market a, 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 a submerged marketplace out there of beyond niche content, hits beyond, beyond the, hits. the big sellers and what's interesting is that um about a year later after i started got all this data Then you maybe remember this, um, AOL, you know, then people, academics started saying, hey, you know, there's some interesting data here. Let's ask for it. AOL um, released a bunch of data and anonymized it, but didn't anonymize it well enough. (laughs) It got de-anonymized, you know, privacy um, issues, and then it became impossible to get data again. So there was like a window of about two years where you could have done the long tail, and I just happened to be there then.
0: I was a subscriber. I still am a subscriber to Wired for... It's like a decade plus now. And, and the thing that always stood out to me about Wired was the marriage of great content with a technology slant with fantastic design ethos. Mm. The, the visual impact of the magazine felt like the internet and a, a print magazine had a baby. It was, it was so visual in ways that other magazines weren't. What was the thinking behind that?
1: So I can take no credit for that whatsoever. That, that was the, the vision of the original founding team, Louis Rosetto, Jane Metcalf, mm-hmm. and John Plunkett, who was the original designer. And their inspiration at the time, the dear friends right now, as a matter of fact, every time there's a new editor, uh, Nick Thompson from The New Yorker is now the editor, mm-hmm. and we all had dinner together. We always kind of, you know, infuse the new editor with the creation myth and all that. Um, but the idea, um, you know, if you if you ask them with a story, mm-hmm. um, they'll say, well, you know, we were tr- um, this was the emergence. Of computers and and so print ink is got reflective properties, uh-huh. but screens have emissive properties. Sure. So pixels emit light, and so you know we wanted to we wanted to use an aesthetic that seemed emissive, emissive. It like it
0: like it glowed. And on, a lot of on the, the page. a lot of the neon colors and other things very much were were like a screen emitting.
1: Absolutely. Um. So I think that I I think they'll forgive me for for saying that this is a little bit of a kind of a, um, a of a of a uh, post facto explanation. I think what really happened at the time is there was a new printing process. Like, a, I can't know anything about this. This is like cool. A, Let's like play a with five, this. It was a f- five-color printing process, and it was very expensive. And some printing plants that invested in these new kind of five-color processes were looking for some examples to show them off. And it just bit basically that like a fancy ink and you know, like fluorescent mm-hmm. ink became available affordably, and so they took advantage of it.
0: It makes perfect sense. And the magazine always popped. You turn the pages, and it really... It really was alive. So you take over Wired with the air coming out of the bubble. It was mm-hmm. mid-collapse, um, and it would get worse. It, and and got worse. How hard was it to stay positive as things just went down the tubes? Um, for me, it was it, it was super easy.
1: Um, so um, I would say that if you and I, you know, I think you're going to be talking to Mark Andreessen as uh, as well. You know, those of us who were there then never. Never doubted that the internet was real. We mm-hmm. understood the distinction between the this the stock market valuations and the underlying technology. What
0: was the West Coast view? Oh, the guys in New York really they really messed this up. You know, they took valuations too high. I, I, no surprise, Icarus crashed into the sea.
1: I was actually in China during the bubble, mm-hmm. uh, during the dot com bubble. So I can't really say what the what the collective view was. But I do think that you know the underlying belief that there was something fundamental going on here with mm-hmm. the networks. Um, uh was was never doubted now there's of course you know you know how the internet works like there's the layers right there's like, like the hardware layer with the fiber optic cables mm-hmm. and then there's like you know then the software layers and content layers a lot of the valuations were at the higher level of the content and mm-hmm. the notion was the content was ephemeral it would come and go but the underlying notion of connecting the world was was really important um and so you know the the uh, I think when I got there the consensus was is that wall street had financed an extraordinary infrastructure build out which made fiber capacity super cheap and this was the best thing ever for restarting that suddenly the cost of ent- the barriers the cost of entry was very low thank you thank you wall street and that we would just now you know build for the next 2 years without you know the, the financial microscope and see where it goes
0: da- dan gross wrote a book called uh, pop why bubbles are better than people realize and and the example EUs, whether it's railroads or telegrams or, in in this case, dark fiber, Global Crossing, and Metro Media Fiber, and go down the list. They laid miles and miles of dark fiber at thousands of dollars per whatever it was, and it sells for pennies on the dollar. The theory is, but for this collapsing, you don't end up with YouTube and Facebook exactly. and all these other bandwidth intensive uh, intensive things.
1: Yeah. No, Dan, Dan, Dan's super smart, and the book's great. Um, and I think when you look back now at that decade, it's almost impossible to see the bust. When you look at the underlying adoption curves and data curves, et cetera, it's weird. I mean, you can obviously see it on in NASDAQ. In the
0: 90s or in the- No, East if you of... look
1: back today, if you look back at internet adoption trends, mm-hmm. you, you almost can't see the
0: dip. Right. Because the, the end customers continued to be added at a, a tremendous rate. Because there
1: was something real there. People mm-hmm. wanted what, what we were making. And the fact that it was cheaper only accelerated the
0: adoption. So let, let's let talk about Wired. When you take over Wired, it's kind of, a we, we I said, a hodgepodge. I, I think at one point they didn't even own their own domain. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to do yeah. internet stuff, how, how did that come about?
1: Again, before my time, but um, but yeah. So um, uh, so Wired was you know sort of the before the dot com bubble. There was a there were previous bubbles, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Wired was the hottest thing around in the you know in the late nineties. Basically created a lot of online media. So, like Apache, the the, the web servers used mm-hmm. was actually created, um, you know, in the Wired offices. The first ad, no, no um, the first banner ad, was on Wired. You know, a lot of the things we take for granted today were actually being pioneered in the laboratories that were mm-hmm. Wired. Um, and uh, they filed to go public. Um, and uh,
0: Wired as a standalone. Wired company. as a standalone company. What, what year is this? Oh,
1: I had to get away from n- my mid-90s. time. I'm going to say '97-ish. Okay. Uh, maybe 98, um, and um, didn't work, uh, filed again, didn't work, um, had uh, taken out some finance and debt on anticipation that, they, that it would go public, and ended up having to kind of fire sale some of the bits. And, and the, the magazine, the print bit went to Condé Nast, and the digital bit went to Lycos, uh, which was oh, a search engine, them, sure. which then got bought by some Korean mm-hmm. media company. Anyway, it was it um was you know, it was like one of those, like you know, the the children got adopted by different families, kind of deal.
0: And you helped bring them both under the same I, roof. I, I did,
1: I the call credit goes to Connie kind of Nas. It was clearly it needed to be done, and just mm-hmm. you know, years went by, and valuations kind of stabilized, and kind of Nas appropriately uh, bought it, brought it back.
0: So you really, you really turned the entire magazine around and turned it into this award-winning affair.
1: I, I actually, um, it was very much award-winning before I got there. Um, not I just magazine
0: of the decade, not editor uh, of the year. Those are pretty substantial awards uh, in the industry. I, I think
1: what we did is we believed in the underlying story. The reason I left The Economist, which is the best gig ever, by the way, mm-hmm. was that Wired had changed my life. Um, that I'm, as, 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 a, as a physicist, sitting there, nerding away on these mm-hmm. networks, you know, not believing they were any more than, than, than physics, Wired it opened my eyes to the potential technology to change the world. I know it's a very kind of cliché to say mm-hmm. that, but that's what it did. And, um, and so when I had the opportunity to run Wired, I, th- I said, well, this is the biggest story of my lifetime. Um, the ability to be there in the middle of Silicon Valley and tell this story is, um, you know, that, that, that story's not done. Um, And all I did is just kept the faith.
0: So you're running the magazine, you're the editor-in-chief, you're overseeing publication, and you're writing both articles and books. How do you juggle any one of those things or a full-time job? How do you juggle all of that at once? Um yeah um and you by
1: the way you're married and have five kids and i uh, am yeah, married and have five kids and a lot of hobbies because i ended up starting uh <laughs> starting a drone company maker dad well. and, uh, and then uh, diy d- dad and, yeah you, so, you had a lot of balls in the air to I, say the I, least. I did um well i mean i think i was you know I, I, obviously i had a good staff and you know that my general philosophy on 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 you know leading teams is to kind of point them in a direction set some some you know some Guidelines of what success looks measurable like, measurable targets, and targets say and, go, and let them let them let them do their job. Um, you know, one of the things that wired as a as a um, as a bully pulpit, I guess, for the mm-hmm. technology stories. One of the things that you know that the editors can do is to be a public persona. And uh, to do their own writing, and you know, because I mean, unlike most media, which is which is American media, which is required to be impartial and dispassionate and not point take a point of view, uh, the Economist and Wired shared one thing, which is that they do have a point of view. They have Mm -hmm. a worldview. The Economist, one famously, is British liberalism, um, Mm -hmm. which is free markets and free people. Um, Wired basically took the same approach, but then had this evangelism for technology. So the notion of being evangelical, of being a preacher, um, which meant also being a doer, um, was kind of core to the to the Wired credo. And so um, the reason I did all these side things and you know did the research that led to the long tail and, and free and, and and makers, was that that was the hands on that was the doing. I mean that's what Silicon Valley is all about. It's about it's about doers, um, and I just didn't feel I could tell the story if I wasn't doing
0: it. Hmm. That, that's quite fascinating. You you mentioned uh, the fr- free and the freemium model. That was pretty prescient when you when you put that out. What do you think of the freemium model today? Is it still Working um, and, and how has it negatively impacted other industries yeah. like, like print journalism?
1: Yeah no exactly um, so I mean just to be clear I, I've written three books they're all basically
0: the same book <laughs> <laughs> So the long tail <laughs> uh, hold on a second so so the long tail that's a very specific book that an eBay or an Amazon or any online abil- any online retailer, Netflix, has the ability to have essentially an infinite warehouse versus a a brick and mortar. Sears, which is circling the drain, cannot have every, or Barnes & Noble for that matter, they can't have every single book available in the store. That's a very different article, argument than, all right, give this stuff away for free and uh, some percentage of those users will pay you a, a small fee for a higher level of whatever it is.
1: Um, you've articulated the thesis of those very well, um, but let me suggest that they're more connected than you, than you may suggest. Okay. Okay. So if infinite shelf space creates infinite choice, mm-hmm. and therefore we can measure people's actual inter, actual likes and dislikes in a world of infinite choice, then how do you get infinite shelf space? Well, the only way you can get infinite shelf space is the cost of shelf space. The marginal cost is zero. Or, or certainly as close to zero cl- as, close as you can Close get. to zero. So what are the economics of zero cost markets? Mm-hmm. You know, these are markets where where essentially free is a, is an attainable price. Mm-hmm. What are the economics of free? Well, there weren't any. Um you know, economics by definition is monetary economics. Non-monetary economics are something else, psychology, sociology. Sociology, right. sociology exactly. So but what if you applied Economic principles to try to create an economic framework for free, to treat it the same way you would treat monetary markets. Um, then you could explain not only not only you know how things could be free, but how maybe you would use free as the way as a, as a form of marketing that you would basically give things away for free and that in that unlike a traditional market where you can give out you know you can give out free tastes of brownies but not many but of them but of a finite amount with a
0: fixed cost for each exactly. of exactly
1: so in so in, in worlds where you have non-zero marginal costs you can give away 1% and you right. must sell 99 where you have near zero marginal costs you can give away 99% to sell one and just that notion that there was an underlying economic model behind the long tail that drove the long tail led me to to free um, the so freemium you Correct is is the is is the um, is the business model around it. And when I wrote it, freemium was, you know, kind of starting to be known in kind of business to business software, et cetera. Um, it was just before the app store on you right. know and mobile, um, and you, know, you could start to see the beginnings of it. It was mostly in web games that you were seeing freemium as a as, as a model.
0: But this is an example of you identifying something when it was just germinating and saying, "Oh, this is going to be big one day." It it was a, you know, most people have one of those in their lifetime if they're lucky. Here it is not long after the long tail, and here's the next big thing, and you were dead right about it.
1: I mean, I, I I have to admit that I didn't do anything. I mean, this was it was happening around me. Mm-hmm. There was a bazillion great entrepreneurs, Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures. Sure. I think it was, the, it was the person who deserves the most credit for for popularizing freemium. But
0: all I did, did is- he, he, he gave it the name or did he just popularize um, it?
1: One of his entrepreneurs, I think, coined the term, but Fred- Freemium. I think, yeah, freemium, mm-hmm. which is the combination of free and premium. Right. Um, so so you, you give all
0: this away for free, and, you, and, you, and, and if you want to upgrade, exactly right. and then you can time. actually measure the metrics, here's, here's our user research, here's how, many, here's how many people open it, here's how many people engage, log in, sign up. And here's how many of those convert to the paying model.
1: In-app purchases being the perfect mm-hmm. example. So, so today, freemium is the canonical business model of online, of, of web, of mobile um, apps, which is to say most apps are free, especially mm-hmm. games, etc. And there's all these in-app purchases that encourage right. some people to 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 pay. Upgrade, you get secret levels or more weapons or whatever it happens. So today. again, I didn't, you know, I didn't coin anything. I didn't, I didn't invent anything. What I saw though is that there was a, a smart people were starting to act in a certain way, and I just created a framework for it.
0: All right, so let's go from long tail to... To free to makers, right? Which again, I'm going to argue is a totally different same book. <laughs> same book is the long
1: tail physical goods.
0: So you have the ability to put. So when I was a kid, and we're not that far apart in age, I was a kid. You could have these little scientific. What was it called? The company that put Edmund out these scientific. Yeah, you you would either get a chemistry set yeah. or uh, there were a variety electronic set. Mm. I remember the electronic Radio set. Shack, right? And you could put together. You can combine these things in different ways. Oh look I could make a little a home radio kit just by combining these different but things but you didn't go
1: much beyond that. Right.
0: You point out that hey the cost of these things including little electric engin- little electric engines that you could order from China for next to nothing Here's what you could do today, and it's nothing like it was back then.
1: So the, the fundamental difference there was not just the cost of the, the, the goods because they were already pretty cheap. It's just that when you and I were tinkering in our, in our, in our bedrooms or workshops or basements, et cetera, we were essentially we all doing the same thing. We right. were all doing the same kits, but we weren't, kind of, we weren't doing anything new, innovative. We weren't building on other people's work because we didn't have an internet back then. So we had a, we had a book, and um, we followed the instructions of the book, and we, but you know, that was it. We weren't doing anything Innovative. Um, The virtue, so what was new about the maker movement in 2007 was the key year in the maker movement. Um, A bunch of things happened that year. Um, you know, first of all, um, and on all those things, were are standing on the shoulders of the web and oh, and communities and open source, mm-hmm. et cetera. But you had things like Arduino, which was an open source computing board that allowed you to to um, to use your coding skills but actually move things in the physical world. Mm-hmm. There was 3D printing that allowed you to fabricate things you couldn't do on your own. There was, um, you started to see these, um, these sensors um, that you would, things in like a Wii controller, and in my case it was Lego Mindstorms, that you allowed to measure the real world with these extraordinary little chips that that could measure things. Um, there was um, Maker Make magazine. There was the Maker Fair, mm-hmm. and behind it all, that was the year the iPhone was released. And it wasn't clear initially that the iPhone had a connection to this. But when we said, "Why is it that you know?" So I started with my kids. Um, we made a drone on the dining room table out of Lego parts. Mm-hmm. You know, fully autonomous, GPS guided, you know, and this is like, you know, a few years earlier, that was like military, industrial, classified, export control stuff. And we did it with Legos. We did it with Legos, (laughs) you know, Lego Mindstorms. It was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Only later did I say, how is it possible that we were able to do this? I mean, I can see you've got a... You've got a, a Fitbit or something
0: on, uh-huh. your, uh, on, on your arm. I've got a pebble. Oh. They're, they're terribly inaccurate. Um, they make me feel good because I do 20,000 steps apparently uh, every day. I see. Well, there's a little green LED that's just flashing like crazy yeah, underneath that, there. That's because my uh, it tries to measure my heart rate, and it's unable to keep up.
1: Okay. So. Maybe not the best example.
0: <laughs> but the, but guy, the, the technology the... in this is astonishing. Go back in time, and this so
1: is— So I was sitting there in 2007 with my kids and Lego Mindstorms. Um, a guy named James Park had just gotten a Wii controller, mm-hmm. um, a Wii, you know, a video game sure. I and mean, the controller. And he's like, well, "What is this? What's in this stick
0: that lets that cursor move the, on the screen?" Three dimensional exactly. accelerometer. He and everything opens it else up; there's a little it.
1: chip in there, and he says, "Awesome! What what else would that chip be good for?" And he comes up with Fitbit um, uh, with with his colleagues. So, um, so w- what happened is that um, a series of core technologies, um, what's called MEM sensors, these, right. these, thing, these the sensors on a chip. Um, Micro electro mechanical, mechanical d- d- um, sensors, and this, like a sensor So systems, they can systems. sense
0: motion, direction, gravity, exactly. everything
1: else. Um, these, uh, you know, these incredibly fast, low power processors, the ARM, um, Wi-Fi, cameras, GPS, lithium battery technologies. All this stuff was coming out of the iPhone and other smartphones, and because you had these extraordinary kind of, you know, it, it, amount of R and D and economies of scale and production, those components. Were now available to adjacent industries and you know they my, very inexpensive very inexpensive and I call this the uh, the peace dividend of the smartphone. sure. Wars. Um, what happened is that you take you take these extraordinary technologies, these chips that're now available really you know inexpensively. then you have the um, uh, these uh, desktop fabrication tools like 3D printers and CNC machines and laser cutters et cetera. and then you have open source communities. You combine them, and now you've got the germs of an industrial revolution, and that's and that's and this this kind of this ability for regular people to do to take uh, take like make, make the long tail of physical things mm-hmm. rather than just digital things is what drove the maker movement and the Kickstarter phenomenon and what we're experiencing today. So yeah, so so um, so I started by just sort of like, you know, just, just on weekends, throwing together kits. And you know, the problem is that they sold out immediately and the kids just wouldn't do it again. So right. I'm like, i like, I got better things to do than stuff pizza boxes. So I found a guy on the internet uh, named Jordi Munoz who seemed really smart. And I sent him a check for 500 bucks and he just started doing it instead. Mm-hmm. And then he kept, kept sending me pictures. And he's like, yeah, I've expanded the space. I haven't met him right. I've expanded the space, uh, got hired some people. And by 2012, he's
0: in in Mexico. Is that
1: right? Well, I didn't know. Uh. Um, at the tur- it turns out that he was. You know, when I met him, he was a 19 year old in Tijuana, just graduated mm-hmm. from high school. Um, but by you know, by the time I actually went, it's like he kept sending me these pictures of bigger and bigger drone factories. By the time I met him, I mean we were probably doing five million a year. Um, <laughs> okay. By the time, by the you know, by around 2012, I think we were making more drones per month than all of America's aerospace companies combined. Wow. Out of a Tijuana drone factory, which, by the way, is a great name for a band.
0: Tijuana drone factory. That's it. That, absolutely.
1: And um, and so you know, so, so by the time I actually made it like n- not a hobby, but like my job, and took venture capital, etc., is already pretty de-risked. And so yeah, we at this point we were making physical drones. Um, and uh, you know, but we started. Um, I'll just finish with one last story about this. Um, in around 2009 or 10 or 12 or something like that, um, there's the, the aerospace industry has an annual conference. It's called mm-hmm. AUVSI. V, A, A, AUVSI. And, and it's happening. Uh, Autonomous what? Vehicles Systems International, something mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, it's like, you know, the Boeings and the Lockheeds. And the right. They, they
0: have Predator drones that are 40 <laughs> feet
1: long. And it's happening actually this week, I think, in Las Vegas is, mm-hmm. is the annual one. Anyway, um, uh, one of the more, you know, innovative guys on the board invited me to speak um, to, like, you know, the, the military industrial complex, and I gave, I sp- I, I spoke, and I, I held up this little board that we were making called Arduino Pilot, which is based on Arduino, and it cost twenty four ninety five, and I said. Uh, yeah, so we can do. You know, this point drones cost ten million dollars right. and up. And I come out with this board that's twenty four ninety five. <laughs> and I say, if you take this board and you stick it in like a toy airplane, you basically got the same thing you guys do.
0: Right, just for then, ten million
1: dollars. Yeah, and they just couldn't figure. I mean, they couldn't decide whether I was, you know, whether I was crazy or dangerous or both. Right. Uh, but they knew that it wasn't that it was a joke. You know, they they knew that I was not to be taken seriously. And uh, you know, the Gandhi phrase: they first they ignore you, then right. they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you then you've won. Today, you know, that board and others like it. There are other people who are doing the same thing at the same time. There are now a million drones sold per year. You can now – there's never been a technology I can think of that went from military industrial complex to the toy shelves of Walmart faster Mm -hmm. than drones. And when we started, people said, you can't use the word drone because it sounds like a weapon. Now they tell us we can't use the word drone because it sounds like a toy.
0: So so the question uh, – all right, so I have to ask. uh, The question I asked when I saw that – big black drone out uh, outside of your reception area is, all right, so where's the hunter-killer adaptation? How do I add something to, if I need to take care of business, what's the adaptation to? It's got elements of Skynet to it. How often do you get that idiotic question? Because some of these things look... It's
1: not not that idiotic. ISIS ISIS is using drones very much like ours, hopefully mm -hmm. not ours, but very much like ours today. Um, they did exactly what you described. They bought, they, typically they'll buy um, uh, d- uh, drones from China. Mm-hmm. Um, they stick a little a little hook on the bottom, and then they drop bombs.
0: Off of the drones? From the drones. So there was another drone I was looking at uh, last weekend in the Apple store that it, it's very light, it's very small. The um, rotors are encaged in a sort of... That's the hover drone. Uh, think, yeah. yeah, and and... It has this facial recognition software built in, so when you lock it on somebody, it just tracks them. And I'm like, "Oh, that's how you assassinate people? You just need some yeah. some minor uh, thing." So, this so is I, not I can,
1: that far from Skynet. Yeah, I can be pretty. You know, whatever the science fiction
0: catastrophe, you imagine? You know, there may be catastrophe, but it won't be that catastrophe. Oh, I don't think it's a broad catastrophe. I think it's just an efficient way to remove certain people who are problematic. Well, um, how far away is that from
1: Tuesday? That particular one. (laughs) So that's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, if you'd actually taken it out of the box and turned it on, you would have heard that it's really noisy. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to let this, like, buzzing, you know, mini laundry. By the time you hear
0: it, it's too That's their tagline. By the time you hear us coming, it's too late. Would that that
1: True. <laughs> <laughs> you heard drones this morning. They're they're they're, they're noise. You're not going to stealth. You know now mm. at least not with a helicopter.
0: How far away are we from stealthier rotors, or is that just physics and that's never going to change? Well, you know we work hard on that. You know we don't make the drones anymore. We just do the software.
1: But you know um, you know up against so we could absolutely do more with you know sort of different propeller designs mm-hmm. and you know vibrations and resonant frequencies mm-hmm. and, all, and speeds and all this kind of stuff. But but by and large you're up against physics. Now that's not to say that an airplane you know the ones with, with wings can't just glide. Their way silently, mm-hmm. but it's not going to hover. So you get hover and noise, or you get non-hover. Right. And so silent. either
0: stealthy or or very mobile. So you mentioned earlier the you realized this is a real business. You um, said let let's most of this is de-risked. Let's go to the venture capital route. What was that process? You had VC money from Qualcomm, from Richard Venture, Richard Branson, from True Ventures. What is the process like going to a VC and saying? Hey, we have this idea for a new company. Where we're going to build and sell this new technology.
1: Well, at, at this point, it wasn't a new company. Remember, we'd bootstrapped mm-hmm. it um, to you know to, to something like five million of revenues, and, and I, you know it was making money. And you know, so that's quite unusual uh, mm-hmm. to to de risk something that that much. Um, so taking it to, to venture capitalism, I mean, it's very early. And at this point, we were roughly, basically technology. We were mm-hmm. sort of saying, you know, we have autopilots, which are these boxes, the, the, the brains for the planes, et cetera. We have autopilots. You know, we have some kits. Um, it was by no means the shelves of Walmart yet. Right. Um, and we actually um, articulated the, the, uh, the ultimate goal not being selling consumer electronic devices in Walmart, but rather putting sensors in the sky. The intention was always to use drones as a tool um, to extend the internet into physical space, and so you know part of extending the internet into physical space is to gather the, to sense the space and the cameras, etc. The other is to extend the intelligence of the internet out, so the devices can basically harness the collective, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the big data, neural networks, whatever. Um, so the idea was, okay, we're going to put sensors in 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 the sky. It's going to complement ground sensors. It's going to complement satellites. If you look up, the sky is empty. It is just the weirdest thing. I mean, it's very hard to find a market as empty as the sky. But there's there's a lot of sky
0: out there, there's and, sky and out there's there. room for plenty of drones. And it doesn't look like you're really taking up a lot of space. I, exactly, and the drones are smart. In the same way, same way, you know, the analogy I would use is
1: on wireless. You know, there was a time when the FCC's job was to give. Give wireless carriers monopoly ownership of certain wave, certain mm-hmm. spectrum. You know, you know this frequency is yours and that frequency is somebody else's. And we have to kind of you know block off the bits so they don't interfere and ruin you know grandma's television reception or whatever it was in mm-hmm. those days. Then along came Wi-Fi, which says, hey, you know what? If we have like low power and the ability to kind of listen before you talk, and you know digital radios, etc., maybe you could just give us a sandbox, a little sort of you know spectrum, and mm-hmm. just let us. You know, not play. Uh, play. No licenses, no ham radio, just you know, right. no no monopolies, just let us play. And that's essentially what we achieved um, with drones. We sort of we said, hey, you know, give us a sandbox. That sandbox is going to be visual line of sight, under four hundred feet, don't fly over people, private right. land, things like that. And um, and, recrea- and originally it was recreational use, not commercial mm-hmm. use. And all those things were were, were legal, you know, call them loopholes or call them, you know, um, let's say— It was say, a carve-out. It, it, totally carve. a... it, I I it was a carve— It wasn't—I think it was a carve-out actually for radio control hobbyists mm-hmm. rather than for drones that happened in the 70s. Right. But we used that carve-out to to basically stick a million drones in the air. And then we're like, okay, now they're here. They're good. Now what are they good for? And this became the commercial use. And originally, mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be agriculture. I thought we were going to be, you know, um a And
0: measure- they are currently used pretty robustly in, in they are, but not as much agriculture, as- real estate. I can't tell you how many homes I've seen that standard drone pan yeah. over... Oh, isn't that lovely? Look at that. I mean, that's become standard. So Hollywood,
1: of course, is the, was was the, was Huge. the first one.
0: So now you guys a... were involved with uh, Fast and Furious. If I I've seen some yeah, of your toys no, around. Actually,
1: uh, no, actually, We were involved in uh, the Benghazi film, uh, but the Fast and Furious is that uh, we have these uh, sprints, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so sprints are our are, are, are development milestones. are all named after Fast and Furious films. Oh, um, okay. Uh, you know, Fast and Furious exactly. Mm-hmm. And it just turns out they're making the films about as quickly as we can develop. So. <laughs>
0: So, you know, yeah, I think this is the towards the end of them at this point. This last one, you think number eight is going to be the I, end? I, yeah. I'm hoping. Well, we'll have to come up with another theme for our, our sprints. So, so uh, what have you done much in uh, with Hollywood? Have you done much on that side no, of no? Uh, so,
1: so we, we did a tiny bit in Hollywood, but um, actually, there's a you know our, our, our you know back when we were making drones, our biggest competitor was a Chinese company called DJI, which was extraordinary. Perhaps the best company I've I've ever seen mm-hmm. anywhere, not just in China and um they uh, really focused on the on the the cameras and mm-hmm. the stabilization etc and today
0: dji makes
1: the parrot uh, no no but a no, parrot is a french company dji uh, makes the phantom oh the phantom, and, phantom and, okay and you know it's something called the mavic and the uh, i
0: remember when the phantom first came out it was like two thousand dollars and it was twelve hundred dollars and it was seven hundred the prices just plummeted in that Is that China subsidizing this, or are these guys really wringing out economies of scale like that? It's that good.
1: Yeah. Um, So um, you know, I lived in China. I knew you know when I lived in China for those those years of the Economist, everyone said, oh, don't worry about China. They can't do X. You know, X was like innovate or design or software or global or global brands or anything like that. There's a
0: very subtle racism built into that. Which is a repeat of what I recall hearing about Japan, right? Or Korea. Japan early on was, oh, they only make junk. They're good at imitating. They can't innovate anything. And then suddenly, wow, this is really first-class products. And if you remember when Hyundai first came out, they were kind of junky cars. And now suddenly they were the only company that comes out of the financial crisis increasing market share. I think it was them and Subaru. So that, oh, those guys can't do anything. That's a very dangerous assumption for anyone to ever make. So, so you know, m-
1: everything I learned about China before going there, I think turned out to be wrong. Hmm. Um, everyone said, oh, you know, um, uh, you know, the political system is unsustainable. Their economic growth is unsustainable. This quote-unquote centrifugal forces would sort of splinter them apart. Yeah. They, um, you know, they can't innovate. Or they only copy and. And I and it was um, it was around 2008 or 2009 where I, I spent most of my time in, in Guangdong province mm-hmm. um, around Shenzhen and um, I spent a I spent a, a night in Huawei which is the telecoms company sure. at the time they were being accused you know
0: maybe, stealing, maybe, for stealing from the iPhone stealing from the
1: Cisco stuff it, it it was way before iPhone I mm-hmm. understood uh, this is 90s, 97 98 um, and uh, and I so I spent a night you know and the engineers were working all night you know sleeping on futons and I was like. These guys are awesome. They're serious. Um, They're serious. They're basically, and you know, they're basically. Yes, they're making iPhones today, but they're taking notes. Mm -hmm. And um, the company we ended up competing with, DJI, uh, started around actually a little bit before us. Um, But um, you know, the so-called China can't do X. We haven't found an X really. So they they um, they innovated. They raised ten billion dollars. You know. Billions of dollars of, of, of venture capital, you know, ten billion dollar valuation. Wow. They went global initially. They actually targeted outside of China before China. Their design exquisite. Their marketing is fantastic. Um, you know, uh, their and then their production efficiencies because they were ancients and they vertically integrated. So they're doing right. everything. You know, they're you know they weren't they weren't like. They weren't just like buying off-the-shelf stuff like we were. They They're were actually, making it all themselves you know, from fundamental scratch. physics, you know, um, uh, hmm. design, et etc. So so you know, watching them, you know, it's uh you know I knew that these twenty first century Chinese companies were coming. I knew that they were going to be good. Um, but just watching the price decline that came with that, seventy percent price decline in nine months, Wow. I think there's a, um, you know, we were... As the
0: quality went
1: up, as the, the price free fall Exactly. Um, and I don't think they were dumping. I think they're just that good. wow So we were one of the first Silicon Valley companies to encounter a 21st century native Chinese company. Mm-hmm. And um, we won't be the last.
0: So let's talk about the pivot. You originally were designing and manufacturing drones and doing all the software that went into it. The concept is, hey, we, we don't even want to try and compete with this behemoth on manufacturing. But the software, sort of an Apple model of, hey, we'll let these guys build the hardware. We're going to build the brains of it because that's where our expertise is. How, how did that pivot come about, and, and how is that going? Yeah,
1: so we originally, we did it all. Um, we did the, the hardware, we did the software, which is like the operating system for the drone. And we also did the apps that, that ran with it. Um, we ended up breaking them into three parts. The, the hardware part, we just spun off and, and don't do that at all anymore, so we, we now uh, so, you know, support Mm-hmm. Whatever hardware's um, out there.
0: So if I want to go out and buy a 3DR drone, are they still available for sale?
1: Uh, they, they, they are. Um, it's called SightScan. It's our, it's our, you know, commercial one. It's actually, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually, um, it is, it is a drone that we did make. But
0: the, um, but the, the, the. Solo or the. It's, a,
1: it's, it's, it's a derivative of the Solo, but it's got mm-hmm. a fancy Sony camera, and mm-hmm. fancy GPS, etc.
0: Nice gimbal attached to it as well.
1: Exactly. But, but soon enough, um, if you want a different kind of drone, we'll support that as well. So we're trying to be hardware agnostic. Right now, mm-hmm. we think that. This particular integration with the Sony camera is you know, the best camera, and that's the way to go. But I think that over time, we're going to be more flexible, mm-hmm. and if people want you know, a different drone, that's th- that'll be fine. I think that's, um, almost all um, American drone companies have done the same thing. Everyone stopped making their own hardware. Most mm-hmm. people are supporting DJI at this point. Um, then there was the operating s- system part. Um, and that was mostly open source, mm-hmm. thanks to the way we started. And so we spun that off, and that's now part of the Linux Foundation. It's called, oh, dr- really? It's called Drone Code. And so I'm the chairman of that oh. as well.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, so that's open source, available to anyone who wants to use it to or
1: improve it. it. Exactly, exactly. So that's Drone Code. Um, and then there's the apps. And the apps is where we focus. This is mm-hmm. using the drone data. So it's not less about the drone, more about the data. Using the drone data to do something useful. And in our case, we partnered with Autodesk, who's the dominant company in the... Uh, 3D uh, cons- design. And- yeah, it's AutoCAD, and mm-hmm. it's construction, and engineering, and, and architecture, and things like that. And um, they, uh, you know, their initiative has been to sort of say, well, you know... In construction, you start everything digital on screen in CAD, mm-hmm. and then the moment you dig a spade of dirt, it's, it's, it's now analog, mm-hmm. and you can't measure and you can't use the same tools. So what you need to do is re the, the world as you're building it, and that's called reality capture, and we're the capture in reality capture.
0: So that's interesting. I, I've been watching somebody putting up, it's got to be for the past, I want to say two years, every month or every two months the drone flyover of the Apple campus. And mm. I've watched this come together. It's it's I, It certainly is time compressed. It feels like, gee, they've been working on that a long time. It seems like it's only a year or so mm. I've been watching this. But it's astonishing at the clarity and focus and amount of details that you can see for what is essentially private property. Yeah, yeah we're going to go in and, and what sort of issues do you have when you're trying to get that granular on a construction site. And are there problems with people sending drones? So the first question is really, the first question is really, how granular can you get on a construction site mm-hmm. in identifying how big is this hole? How yeah. deep is this foundation? How much sand is this here? And then I'll save the question about people doing sure. flyovers for later.
1: Yeah, and the answer to the first is two centimeters per pixel. Um, two
0: centimeters per yeah, pixel. Yeah, so basically
1: we can see a quarter. Okay, um, that's pretty detailed. It's pretty detailed. Um, so what you described as photographs, maybe
0: video, um,
1: that's actually not what the construction industry no, you, wants.
0: You're talking about actually the measurements of everything contained there. So uh,
1: the process is, and you probably saw it this morning on our, on our roof, um, the process is you, you you take out an iPad. Uh, there's a drone just sitting there. Mm-hmm. You turn on the drone, press the button, take out your iPad. Um, you um, you either either be doing the same scan every day, in which case you just swipe. Um, mm-hmm. Or you just drag a box around the thing you want to scan, and then you swipe. The drone then takes off. It flies like a lawnmower pattern or a crosshatch pattern, right. and takes photographs at exactly the right time, so those photographs can be stitched together into a three D model or mm-hmm. or a two D model. And then that is then you superimpose the CAD file, which you know the underlying design, over this this model, and you can compare as as designed with as built.
0: So so this is a little bit of augmented reality. Yeah, you're, exactly. You're essentially Putting a, a it, it's almost like a wire map on top of exactly. the world and comparing it to what was supposed to be built precisely. And because it's all so precise, if something's off, it's
1: actually off. So if you if a post is off or a trench is off or a, or you know or a, one of the cables, um, for the you know for the this called post tensioning cables, which is a big thing mm-hmm. in construction, you can actually see it's called a clash. And when you see that the that the, that the physical you know, the physical site is off from the design, there's only mm-hmm. there's only two possibilities. Either it was an intentional change for good reason, right? Um, and in which case you need to reflect that change back into the model so that everyone understands that things have changed, or it was an accident, in which case you need to catch it and fix it.
0: And it sounds like it's vastly less expensive to catch it early than to catch it after the building is built. And hey, why are we uh, tilting in San Francisco? There's exactly. that famous building that's off. You guys would have caught that earlier, whatever was. I don't
1: know if we would have caught, caught caught that one, but the construction industry is the second largest industry in the world after That's after, amazing. after food, eight trillion dollar industry, and unlike agriculture, which is hedged against all sorts of inefficiencies, water, mm-hmm. et cetera, construction's not. It's got eighty percent average cost overruns for eighty 80%. percent. 80% That's cost amazing. Over. So it's like it's like a five trillion dollar industry that overran itself to eight trillion dollars, um, and those cost overruns are typically due to to just. You know, stuff happened, right? Mm-hmm. Mistakes, delays.
0: It's a complicated supply chain. and Any kind of delay turns into cost. Um, so if- this is a huge efficiency creator, huge cost savings. Is the expectation eventually every major contractor is using... Some um, form of drones to help build their, what they're uh, doing? No. It's, it's, um, so there's lots of ways to, to do reality capture.
1: You can do it um, on the ground with laser scanning. You mm-hmm. can do it on the ground with cameras. There's inside the building and outside the building. So what drone scanning is best for is, is uh, commercial construction. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, uh, some of the larger sites, um, often not like in the, in, a, in a city center because you have FAA regulations about where you can fly and where you can't fly. So it's kind of commercial sites. Um, like getting you know, skyscrapers, mm-hmm. you know, big big complexes, typically outside of a city center. But still, you're talking about maybe a third of, of construction falls into that category. And then the most important time to do it is at the beginning when you've got the, the, the site, you're digging the holes and the foundations, mm-hmm. et cetera, that characterizing it. Because remember, the drone's just scanning the outside of the building. So you scan the site, you scan the foundations, and then you scan each layer as they build it up.
0: So given the snafu with that leaning tower of San Francisco, how unlikely is it that eventually planters are going to say, hey, if we want to avoid this, we have to allow some sort of external Absolutely. scanning?
1: It's being required right now. It's, it's part of a um, – uh, so Japan has just required drone scannings by 2020 uh, for all – In major cities? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's for government uh, infrastructure. They do a lot of um, roads and bridges mm-hmm. and highways and things like that. Um, this is part of a, of a trend called building information modeling, BIM. And, Building um, information modeling. It's basically the notion of digitizing sites, so you mm-hmm. can manage. You know, you can only manage what you can measure. Mm-hmm. And governments are now requiring BIM, which is to say, hey, you know, we need you to measure these sites because these cost overruns are being paid for by somebody. Right. It's
0: either the ultimately, it's the consumer, the end user who's, who's going to subsidize that, it, unless it's a government project, in which case it's a taxpayer. It's a reasonable request. Measure what you're doing so that we can manage it better. You know, either
1: we're going to avoid the errors, or if it happens, we know why it happened, who caused it, you know, paper trail. I mean, so many construction projects end in lawsuits. Mm-hmm. And you have this, like, this question, like, how did that happen?
0: We were t- discussing earlier about the low cost of all these uh, Chipsets sets and, and individual chips that allowed you to do really incredible things at a very low cost, what made you realize that, hey, these drone things, this is more than just a cool little toy?
1: Um, it, first of all, I didn't initially realize that. Okay. Um, so, I mean, my path was really simple. I've got five kids. My wife and I are, are are former scientists. We try to get our kids excited about science and technology, and we fail and fail and fail again. <laughs> Um, and so every weekend, I'm you know I'm I'm th- trying to think of something that'll engage them, keep them busy. Well, I mean keep them busy. I mean video games will keep them busy, but I want to keep their minds busy. Okay. As, well, as well. So um, uh, one weekend, uh, I'm editor of Wired, you know, and I uh, we get these like products in for review, and um, this Lego Mindstorms NXT robotics mm-hmm. kit comes in, and this like radio control airplane comes in, and I'm like, okay, one of these two things is going to work. Um, either the robot. Building a robot will be cool, or at least flying a plane will be cool. And, um, you know, the kids roll their eyes and oh, another one of dad's things. Um, So we we (laughs) built the robot, and um, it was not cool. It was not cool. I thought it was cool. Um, but you know, it's basically spent all morning building it out of Lego pieces, and it rolls very slowly against waves the wall. Its arms, and it doesn't. Oh, it. Right, if only it waved its arms. <laughs> basically, just had two wheels, and it rolled towards a towards a wall, and then kind of backed away. And they're like, "Come on, we've seen Transformers Right. You know, with the lasers." Um, and then you know, the next <laughs> where are the lasers? <laughs> and then on the next day, we flew the airplane, which is to say, I flew it directly into a tree, and then right rocket, that sucked. Um, <laughs> so I, I my thought process consisted of the following: um, you know, one, those rotten kids, right? You know, so, two. That actually wasn't very cool. Three, what would have been cooler? Huh, what if the robot could fly the plane? What if we had a flying robot? That'd be cool. What's a flying robot? I just came home, Googled flying robot. If you Google flying robot, you yeah. will find the first result is drone. Uh-huh. And you're like, oh, huh, I guess a drone is a flying robot. Wait, what's a drone? Google drone. Oh, a drone is like an airplane with an autopilot. It's like a plane with a brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Wait, what's an autopilot? Google autopilot. Oh, an autopilot is like sensors and, uh, and, and, and software mm-hmm. that you know, kind of measure you know, the orientation of the plane and, and fly it. And it's like, oh, wait, sensors and software, isn't that what's in the Lego Mindstorms box? Right. Let's just do that. And so there on the dining room table, we put together a Lego autopilot and we stuck it in the RC plane, which I had retrieved from the, the, the tree, and took it back to the field. And it, you know, it worked just well enough. As in, kind of flew autonomously just 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 long enough for me to say holy cow what have we just done here the kids mm-hmm. are like yeah as we said that sucked dad <laughs>
0: um you know and i'm like wait we So there's just... Kitty Hawk watching the invention of drones and they're like yeah what else you got
1: yeah exactly you flew for like 60 feet come on <laughs> you know where's where's my jetpack um <laughs> Um, so, I have that T-shirt somewhere. Where's my <laughs> flying car? So, um, uh, so I, you know, I the hair went up on the back of my neck. I was like, I don't know what just happened there, but I need to find out. And so I created a website called DIY Drones, which um, was basically a place for me to ask dumb questions in public. And when you ask dumb questions in public, two wonderful things happen. Number one, people answer your dumb questions, and second, it liberates other people to ask their own dumb questions. Mm-hmm. And it was just that moment. It's 2007. It's the moment where. All these disciplines were coming together. There were software people and hardware people and airplane people, et cetera. And over the course of a couple of years, they basically, the community basically created the most advanced drones, you know, that you, well, certainly the most advanced drones you could buy, and possibly the most advanced drones in the world, at least the technology. And it was our job just to create a company to turn them into a product. So
0: so originally you were selling kits. You could get these engines, you could get these motors, these battery packs, and here, put this to your, together yourself and have, have some fun. When did that, first of all, how long did that go on and how did that come about? And then when did that transfer to let's build drones and sell yeah. it to the public? So it was a hobby
1: from 2007 to 2013.
0: Oh, so a full six years of just... Uh, me just
1: noodling away. Now, when I say hobby, um, I, you know it started with me and my kids putting together um, robot blimp
0: kits in mm. a pizza boxes.
1: Um, Did uh, they
0: ever get excited about the idea of drones? Did uh, ever? No. Never. never? Never. And you never. have some crazy cool stuff here. Even this stuff, they're like, eh, yeah. who cares? Yeah. No. I know. <laughs> and, you, know you got any more kids? <laughs> I, 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 I brought one, and he's walking around, eyes bugging out of his head, going, oh, my God, look at all this stuff. But he's in his 30s, so he, he's easily right. This is He's the right age. I think they're spoiled. The, it's a dad thing. Let's talk about Silicon Valley and the so-called bubble and unicorns. I always hate when people pull out the most extreme example of something and try and paint everybody with that broad brush. Is there a bubble in Silicon Valley today?
1: I'm, I'm the worst person to ask. Okay. Um, so I actually pay no attention to valuations. Really? I just it, It's it's not how we keep score.
0: Doesn't it affect... The ability to either find talent, hire, source things. When things get crazy, it's like, hey, we can't hire anybody. These engineers are asking for 400000 as a base doesn't the When things get really out of hand, does it affect everything? It must. I mean, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> um, I mean, the
1: engineers that I've worked with in the past are motivated primarily by the work. Mm-hmm. They want to do the most exciting work of their career. I mean, there was a while when our recruiting technique consisted of the words "flying robot."
0: Right, that was <laughs> Any it. Any questions? Where do I <laughs> sign? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, I'm sure that at some level, the ability to, you know, have upside in your in your stock options or salary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, of course, that's a that's a thing, but it should be a second order um, thing. I mean, the reason that. You know the Teslas and Ubers are able to. Well, Uber's a special case. Let's not say the Teslas of the world, or Apples are able to hire so well, is because
0: you're going to do really exciting, meaningful work. Mm-hmm. On the way up here, we passed the Tesla factory, and it's enormous. And it's just like, wait, what was there before this? Was oh, that was just a field.
1: No, it was actually no. It's a it's a great story. Uh, it was a really good um, this American Life episode. Uh-huh. It was a uh, Numi, um, the GM Toyota, I
0: think. Um, oh, okay. Uh, experiment sure. In the
1: future of, of of car manufacturing. Well, it turns out so to be well. right. Turns out there <laughs> turned, that's the
0: future of uh, could be the future of cars. You know, right people there.
1: don't give uh, give uh, Elon enough credit for that particular one. He was able to buy that factory. It's a mile long. Right. He it's was able huge. to buy that factory for um, you know for pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, before there was any real case, and originally Tesla was like a tiny corner, like one tenth of the factory at the, at the end. And by the end, by the time he's done, he'll be using it all of it and more, and then some. And that, he bought all that equipment as well for again pennies on the dollar.
0: That that was so. The original Tesla was buying a Lotus, taking the engine out, and filling the the floor of the car with batteries essentially. Mm. And, and this is where they're actually making the cars. And it's it's astonishing to drive by. It's gleaming and amazingly, amazingly huge.
1: And then, you know, keep going, and then you'll get to the Solar City bit, and right. then the battery
0: factories Giga, and, Giga
1: factory. Gigafactory. And keep n- driving south, and you'll get to SpaceX. So there's some cool stuff happening out mm-hmm. here. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to drive because he's digging a tunnel between the two. The Hyperloop, is that really going to... I'm not sure. I
0: think the, the tunnel and the Hyperloop are different things. Oh, I'm really? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little... I can't keep up. He's not
1: actually digging a tunnel between the two, but you it get would, the idea. It would
0: be fun if he, if he was. Um, so you don't really think about... Valuation or or, or bubbles. Uh, what motivates people who are attracted to this part of the part of the world? What what is the driving factor? There are vast riches here, but there's yeah. some really cool stuff here. It, it, what what's the dominant meme out here? Well, you know, it, it, I mean, I don't. I, a dominant meme is, a, is
1: is 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 saying a lot. I mean, I think in general, and it sounds like a cliche. You know, the idea that, and this goes right back to the foundings of WIRED, the idea that technology can change the world
0: mm-hmm.
1: continues to resonate. Um, you know, Elon Musk is kind of everybody's hero. But, you know, Jeff Bezos and, you know, Larry and Sergey from, from Google are all in the same category. They are tackling the big problems. Mm-hmm. This is the environment, food, life off the planet, the future of transportation, of energy. I mean, this is like, you know, say nothing of biotech and medicine and all that. Right. Um, people feel like they're doing meaningful work
0: it certainly makes makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about all these private companies that have chosen not to go public. What do you again, I look at you as somebody who is a astute observer of the technology scene around you. So, even if you don't necessarily care about valuation, mm. what do you make of these companies? Go down the list of unicorns that have these huge valuations and just seem to show no interest in IPOing? What's the exit for the VCs, and and what is the reluctance to cash out or raise more capital? I guess for someone like Uber, they don't need more capital.
1: Well, the reluctance to go public is, is obvious, which is there's a it's a hassle to be a publicly traded company.
0: Yeah, but it's how you as an individual uh, get liquid. It's how your backers. Well, as
1: an individual, there's lots of ways to get right. to get liquid. You know, a, a Travis, you know does. There's plenty of secondary markets for that. Mm-hmm. It is um, for your employees. It's a little, it's a little tougher. And you know, there's been a lot of. And you you'll probably, you know, Barry, you maybe can advise me on this. There's been all this talk of like, you know, secondary markets, that, mm-hmm. you know, liquid secondary markets that could allow people, uh, employees, etc., to get liquid. Um, they've always,
0: they've never really come to to right. fruition. I'm not sure why. Well, part of the reason is when you you go public, you go through the SEC process. You yeah. go through this. And there's a very standard set of ways of, mm. you're locked up for this period of time, and now if you want to sell some or all of your stock, here's the methodology. The various secondary markets simply aren't big and deep and liquid yeah. enough yeah. to do that for every company that wants to go public. Or doesn't want to go public. Uh, that's right. And then you you also end up with the venture capital backers and yeah. the original founders who either put up money or sweat equity or both. It's hard to see how they capitalize on the success without going public. So is this, I look at this as a little bit of a coy dance, and Uber will eventually go public, as will Lyft, as will all the other unicorns, or am I you know, old school?
1: Well, I wouldn't see the whole thing through the lens of of unicorns. I mean, obviously, you have a multi-billion dollar valuation. There aren't a lot of ways to get liquid. But if you have a lower valuation, hundreds of millions or something like that, then M&A is a perfectly reasonable way to, to do it. Um, And so I I would I would say that um, uh, you know the the uh, you know there are when you look at our investors in particular we're a combination of strategics like Mm -hmm. Autodesk and Qualcomm and then venture capitalists they're all looking at creating big value down the line either it's you know like you're looking at construction I mean we have Mm -hmm. the opportunity to be part of the you know transformation of the second biggest industry in the world Um, you know if we get this right there will be any number of companies that would want to. You buy us. We may not choose not to sell, um, but but the notion of when you're creating value, you have you you open up optionality. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Now you don't want to create your valuation so high that, that you that there's right. that you, you could create a lot of value, but there's only like you know three people, like three countries, three that, companies right. in the world that could buy you, and they won't because then you have to go public. Right. Um, so it's it's a it's a delicate balancing act. But if you created value, and if you have taken the time to sort of take tackle a big a big industry.
0: How far are we from flying robots really being uh, an everyday part of life, ordinary life? You mentioned Bezos. Uh, there was a lot of buzz when he talked about using drones as, as delivery vehicles. How serious is that? Are we eventually going to order something from Amazon and a drone is going to drop it at our house. Well, you know, so
1: Bezos has the delivery, but there's also Uber and others who are talking about air taxis. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're talking about, you know, drones on every construction site or every farm, et cetera. Um, You know, of all of those, I think actually seeing drones as a conventional part of, you know, construction or agriculture is probably the nearest. Uh, My my grandfather um, was uh, the inventor of the automatic sprinkler system and um he was my inspiration
0: the automatic sprinkler, sprinkler system. system meaning
1: if i have if i have timer really yeah so he was a he was a swiss engineer
0: in los angeles working to bring the talkies you so know? you come from a long line of makers in other words well one <laughs> Um, Two generations back, that's pretty 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 good ancestry for uh, exactly. a tinkerer. Exactly.
1: Well, it was certainly my inspiration. I spent my summers. I was, I was kind of a rotten kid, and so I was sent to spend my summers with my grandfather. We just spent the, 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 the summer silently working in the in the workshop but what I love about the sprinkler a sprinkler is my inspiration for drones you may mm-hmm. not think so I mean I see the connection but a sprinkler is a robot you know sure. a modern sprinkler is connected to the internet it's got sensors it's you know it comes up mechanically does its own thing goes back in what I love about it is how boring it is you just sort of put your sprinklers. in. Oh, you live in New York, so you probably
0: no. I live in the Burbs. Oh, I have underground sprinklers. Absolutely, four zones, the rain sensor, absolutely. so it doesn't go on when it's raining. And it's it just... an interesting little technology. And it just kind of works, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You take them... it for granted. So I would. That's the, that
1: is the sign of success. So if someday drones are as boring as sprinklers, mm-hmm. which is to say, there's a box. There's a box on the farm. There's a box on the construction site. Whatever. And every morning at like you know 8:30 a.m. the box opens. The it's not a sprinkler coming out; it's a drone coming out. It surveys the like site a Roomba. It goes like home, charges
0: itself, and exactly. waits for the next morning. And this whole thing is completely automated. And you and and we, I would love it
1: to be covered in mud. I'd like to have stickers, like <laughs> union stickers, on it, something like that. You know, just absolutely conventional right. construction equipment. And no one cares about it because all they care about is the data. Right. And what they know is that every morning they have a, a you know an up to date, super high resolution. 3D, 2D model of the site. It digitized, the site was just automatically digitized in the cloud every day.
0: Now, that is not something that's decades or years off in the future. That's months or weeks
1: away. We could do it today. Today. The only thing stopping us is that um, uh, FAA regulations currently Mm -hmm. require a pilot in command. Now, the pilot now, this is the PIC, the pilot command. doesn't have to be a pilot. It doesn't actually have to be in command. But there has to be human present. And when I, meant, when I said that the way it works is that you open up your iPad and you just swipe, that swiping act is That's regulatory. That's it. You're, you're required, in control.
0: It's required by regulation. So it, can't be, so it can't quite be like a Roomba. Not that I have a Roomba, but the the way I understand it is... It knows where its home dock is and how to charge. It, it, it goes and does its thing, and then it returns and it does it regularly, like the irrigation system. So, yeah, the regulatory there. region, you need a human to to push a button.
1: Yeah. So, so our, our our drones are fully autonomous. They do all that stuff all on their own. The only reason, including coming back to yeah. a charging dock. I mean, it, it can be. It's a, a pad, and we don't happen to use the pad because we, since we have a human there, mm-hmm. we might as well use them to change the battery. Right. <laughs> um, but but yeah, such a thing exists. You can buy charging. Charging docks or pads and things like that, um, but no. The um, so t- so what we're talking about is autonomy, the notion of taking the human out of the loop, and it's simply a regulatory thing. So we work with the FAA mm-hmm. to figure out what what would it take to allow them. So like right now, it has to be one person, one one human, one drone. What about one human, ten, 10 drones? drones? Sure. What about one human global fleet of drones monitored remotely? Turns out that that actually you know you can sit there on the ground and you know you're in command but you're 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 not you're checking your email you're not looking right. etc if you're not paying attention the drones the drone's got much better perceptual powers than you have you're uh-huh. there it's over there it has cameras all over the place it's got mm-hmm. sensors it's got you know radar and sonar and lidar and all this kind of stuff how about just let the drone you know stay Do out of harm's extent. way? and if it's got an issue it can alert you And tell you to pay attention. Makes sense. But in the meantime, why don't you do what you're best at, which is...
0: Answering emails. Whatever it is.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So that's the process we're going through with the FAA to figure out what what sort of evidence they need to allow that kind of autonomy.
0: And that's... My assumption is that's not all that far off in the future. I mean, I think when you're talking about places
1: like farms, which is private land away from people... I think that's going to be a low density. Low density. We're talking about easy. going beyond visual line of sight, which is the right. particular phrase. So I think there's going to be bits where it's accepted first. And when getting back to delivery, um, you know, the Amazon, you know, original video of delivering in your suburbs—that's that's hard. Dogs, kids, mm-hmm. telephone lines, et trees. Et cetera. Yeah. But delivering to a rural area that's quite expensive for the postal service to get to, right? That actually makes more sense.
0: Do Do we have the battery life to send something fifty miles out mm-hmm. into a farm and back? It yeah, seems sure. Uh, fixed wing an airplane, you know. So so uh,
1: you know, consumer drones or consumer sized drones have flown across the Atlantic. Oh, really? Uh,
0: yeah, you know. So you does not have to be electric. Wait, if consumer you, size, like three feet across. Like,
1: like an airplane that's like a got a three foot, four foot wingspan, something uh-huh. like that. It doesn't have to be a battery, but you can't use a gas power sure. engine. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, not a
0: problem. Huh. So I want to talk about your, one of the TED Talks you did, where you talk about four key stages of viable technology. Right price, market share, the displacement of existing technology, and finally becoming ubiquitous. Is that four stage process something that's pretty standard, or do I have the wrong Chris Anderson? Ha. I get that a lot.
1: Uh, so is the joke you're making is that uh, the the curator of uh, of, of Ted, TED is is also named Chris Anderson. He and I how, are, how are big good of friends. a pain in the neck
0: is is having someone else in tech? One plus one equals three. We okay. have we have a mutual non destruction pact. Okay, that's um, we, fair. We promise
1: not to ruin the Chris Anderson brand. There you go. Um, we forward <laughs> each other each, each
0: other's misdirected emails without do, reading it. Do you, do you guys get each other? Yeah. So uh, let me a quick digression. My last name is spelled O-L-T-Z. We have cousins who don't have the second T. Mm. So I have a cousin named Barry Ritholtz, R-I-T-H-O-L-Z. He has a kid brother, Richard, as do I. So there's two Barry and Richie Ritholtz's. At one point in time, we both had offices in 300 Park, and we would get each other's mail, and it was pretty hilarious. Now, I'm his nightmare, because he has to deal with me in the media, and he... He's a lawyer at a mutual fund mm. company, so is one of us is, is a little higher profile than the other. So he has the bigger headache. <laughs> How does this work with you and Chris Anderson Shank? Well, this is and a basketball he, player
1: too, right? But that's spelled E N for it. So,
0: so you're both spelled with a C though. No, it's identical. It, yeah. it's, it, so. Do both, you really both, get both each other's? It. I think he's full on British full though. On he lived British, there just, for yeah, a long I'm, time. I'm, yeah, you were no, born in London. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so is this a genuine like? Did, does genuine confusion happen with this? Um, yeah,
1: no. I mean, but in, in, in the best sort of way, which mm-hmm. is like people give us give us credit for each other's work. Okay, it's hey. like you know, Chris. You know, you've done such. A, you've written these books, Wired, 3DR, and you run TED.
0: How do you do it? <laughs> and it's like
1: ah, uh, well, you know, I have a clone. I'll sleep, yeah,
0: <laughs> that that's hilarious. So. The four stages of tech, any viable technology, right price, market share, displacing established tech, and then eventually becoming ubiquitous. Is that the process that we always see with technology, or at least for the foreseeable future? Uh, sure, Barry, I have to admit I can't even remember that talk. <laughs> oh, really? I'm sure. It was, You've it, done a, several of them. Yeah, I'm
1: sure it was inspired. Uh, the only reason that talk um, is is on uh, YouTube is that um, my other talks were abject failures. And it turns out not all talks get get uh, get, get put on the
0: website. Oh, really? Um, yeah, my other ones were Tech Demos. Right, and Crash get, and Burn? Crash or? and Burn. Oh, that, yeah, that's big, hilarious. Big, big time. We have been speaking with Chris Anderson. He is the founder and CEO of 3D Robotics, as well as the author of The Long Tail, uh, Makers and Free. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things digital technology. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can see my daily column at bloombergview.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
1: If you're having a business dispute, the process can be slow and drawn out, especially if you rely on litigation in the courts. You can wait for years before your case is resolved, and the longer your case proceeds, the more your case can cost. Not with the American Arbitration Association. Arbitration or mediation with the American Arbitration Association is faster. In fact, nearly 50% of our cases settle prior to hearings. ADR.org. Resolve faster.
0: Welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is really fascinating stuff. I'm having a, a, a great time here. And, and thank you for the drone I get to take uh, home with. Yeah, yeah, yeah Looking exactly. Looking forward yeah, to the, crashing the, that. The, the, the pallet of drones that we're sending. <laughs> um, and we
1: didn't get to do a demo either. We needed to we do... could, if,
0: I'll be I, late going into the city if you late. I don't have time, but if you want to hang around, the team will happily give you a demo. On the I have to be somewhere at 1230, but yeah. I would love to. And I, mean, I We watched them yeah, take yeah. off and land before, and it was just uh, it, it the return to home to land. It literally lands on the same square inch where it took off from. It, it, it's amazing. So, so let's get through some of these standard questions before you have to head mm. into the city. Uh, the most interesting thing that people don't know about your background. Um failed
1: out of college and played in punk rock bands for most of my failed 20s.
0: Failed out of – where would you go to school?
1: Well, I failed I mean, – I ultimately went to school at uh, George Washington and studied at UC Berkeley, which is mm-hmm. where we are here as well. Um, I failed out of a school I won't mention. Okay. Um, but, um, the, but the the cool bit is Wh- that – Why
0: is that? Why won't you mention it? Just because – it's not fair to the school. It was, okay. It was my – It duty. was on you. It, it wasn't was on, on, on them. Yeah. Okay. Um, but ultimately you got a college degree? Yeah, no, I went to I was I was um
1: as a plain punk rock band, so I was a bicycle messenger by day. Right. And at age like 27, um, you know, finally get back to to school and get a degree. Um I was such a mess up uh that I decided to do the hardest thing possible just to convince people that I actually had a brain. So that's why I did physics. Um but the uh, the, the cool bit is that um one of the bands I played in was called uh, REM. But not that REM, But not that REM. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a we had a very funny. Um, we released our albums on the same week, and uh, we is were, this
0: coincidental yeah, it was or were you total like? I mean, who and, knew who REM was? Well, they were like
1: these Hicks from the sticks, Georgia, right. and we were like these the coolest band in Washington D.C. I know, that right? It doesn't, it's a bit of a non sequitur, right? Um, and so our manager thought it'd be funny to have a battle of the REMs, where the winner got to rename the loser. And did that ever happen? It did, indeed.
0: Oh really? Yeah. And what and
1: did and what did they rename you? I'm going to assume they renamed us. A good <laughs> assumption. They renamed re- renamed us Egoslavia. That's hilarious. Under which name we released our only album?
0: Egoslavia. Egoslavia. Oh my God, that's that's hilarious. So let's talk about some of your early mentors. One of which I have to assume is your grandfather. After yeah, the story you absolutely. told us. Absolutely,
1: Fred Fred Hauser, Swiss immigrant, L.A. You know, by day, working on in the film industry, um, bring sound to, you know, bring the talkies in. And uh-huh. by night, I'm um, inventing the automatic sprinkler system, which, by the way, is exactly what a Swiss engineer in L.A. will do. L.A.'s greening the desert. Right. A Swiss engineer would put a clock
0: on the sprinkler. Did he make a fortune in this, or was it one of those things that the patent did nothing? Small small fortune. All right. Hey, better than no fortune. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Who, um, who else? Any other mentors affected the way you think about either technology or writing? Um, well, you know, Wired and its and its founders had a,
1: had a huge influence on me. So, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin Kelly in particular, sure. um, you know, uh, his book um, cool Out of Tools. Control. Well, Cool Tools is is what he's you know one of the things he's known for. But um, one of his original books, uh, Out of Control. So earlier in the conversation, we were talking about emergence and the mm-hmm. notion of capitalism and democracy and the internet being essentially emergent, you know, um, phenomena. Um, well, Out of Control extends that to biological and more net, kind of natural examples I mean uh, the notion of emergent phenomena the notion that there's some general principles physics or chemistry whatever that just set these rules and then everything else all the you know life and civilization emerges from these principles that's that was one of the most influential ideas of my of, of my formative
0: years hmm. interesting Let's talk about who else influenced your approach to writing because you are a quite an accomplished writer not just three books. You're a very influential writer who who shaped your approach to that aha moment, and no. then turning it into, hey, this is an article in a magazine. Oh no, there's more here. Let's turn this into a book. So I don't think of my. I mean, thank
1: you for saying that. Um, I, I, um, my parents were writers, and so I promised to do
0: everything but that, and I failed um, once again. We become, um, we become our parents. There's no way to avoid yeah, it, and despite everything, genetics actually is a thing.
1: Um, so I, I think of. I mean, I, I, I don't. Uh, I, I don't think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as a, as a you know a guy who can sort of get you know, capture ideas and get them out there. So as an editor, of course, you're not typically not writing. you're just packaging ideas as companies, package ideas, open source mm-hmm. communities, package ideas. And writing is one way to do it. I think that perhaps the most influential writer for me was uh, Nicholas Negroponte in mm-hmm. his um, original book, Being Digital. Um, which very early days, um, sure. But it, sweeping notions that the that digital was different—that it almost had kind of you know fundamental physical properties—and um, I think that was probably. I mean, I haven't read it for years, but and I, I can't. I can't tell you whether it was well written or not, but it was very powerful ideas.
0: So, since you brought up books, uh, uh, probably the question we get asked more than any other is, "Hey, what are your guests' favorite books?" So, let's. You mentioned being digital. What other books have you found to be important, influential? valuable to you, fiction, nonfiction, technology, non-tech, it it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, recently I've been reading... I had this rule for like thirty years. I would only read nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the books. You know the, the Kevin Kelly's of the world. Um, recently, I've been been reading fiction again, but only science fiction. On the grounds that it's a you know I can I can almost justify it because there's you know it's
0: kind of a, a vision of the future. hey here's here's where tech is going. Um, right.
1: I mean the the three body problems series um, by who? Uh, oh, now you're now you're asking. Um, it's uh, Chinese um, um, author, um, and it's. Uh, Something Lee, we can look it up. Oh, mm-hmm. um, body problems. Th- the, no, the three-body problem series. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it is the most exciting science fiction. Um, if you liked, um, really? Yeah. So there's the first one was the three-body problem. The second one was the dark forest, and the third one his name is escaping me. I'll, but I'll um, be able to look
0: with those two. I
1: can. Yeah. Strap a little. Um, and it's Lee something. No, it's not Quinley. I can't remember the exactly. The, um, but what's cool is that the guy, the author. Like by day he's a he's an engineer in a like power plant in the middle of China. And by night he writes the most exciting kind of mind expanding um science fiction about, you know, about you know, what would the universe be like if there were if there were, you know, uh, how how would we encounter life? Um why haven't we encountered life? Um, how would we communicate? Um,
0: anyway, it's Cixin lui, c i x i n l i u the three body problem the dark far- forest remembrance of Earth's past and death's end yeah is it, are those the three those are the three i'll um, put that on the list that sounds uh, fascinating uh, yeah uh, is is this fermi's paradox is that what he's describing or um, something more more forward than that i it is it is
1: um, more so the so one notion i mean the most interesting thing, i don't want to ruin the plot but okay. the, the dark forest the middle one Sort of explains the notion that if you encounter, if you know that there's another species out there, you assume that sooner or later they're going to kill you. Right. And so it's really important that you um, that they not know you exist. Okay. And and he kind of walks through the logic. But you know, so we shouldn't be broadcasting
0: television signals into
1: space. Precisely. And so the reason that you know the 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 case there is that the reason we haven't encountered other civilizations is because they're hiding. Because they know that that we. That's a
0: fascinating. That's a fascinating concept. I like that. Any other books you want to mention? Um,
1: those, you know, I, I, God, I mean, there's. Uh, um, I, I hate to, you know, keep using uh, the Kevin Kelly um, I- examples. Um, those are the ones I'm reading right now. Um, uh, there's a new book. Uh, well, anyway, th- no, those, those, those are the ones I'm, gonna,
0: I'm gonna highlight for now. Okay. Um, we talked about changes in the technology industry. We talked about shifts in. Uh, Let let me briefly ask you about the digital shift in journalism and the problem that genuine media outlets are having competing with free and digital. How big of a problem is that for the idea of a free press in America when that business model is under attack from everywhere? So I'm always
1: baffled by that that question. I get it all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no shortage of media. You know, it's the golden age of media. Now we call that media. Facebook, or we call it, you know, you know, the web, or we call it social media. But there's, you know, um, you know, we now have access to global media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get I, the
0: FT every day. There you go,
1: and and you know, digitally as as well. So it's very hard to believe there's any kind of suppression of of of, of, of media um, for economic reasons. I mean, you know, basically the cost of. Distributing, creating and distributing content is very low. Um, so when people talk about the free press, it's a very archaic, almost American notion of the fourth estate. I mean, no other country has this sort of, maybe in some other countries, but, but in general, this, this notion that you, know, that you have these kind of you know, natural monopolies, big city newspapers who are necessary to counterbalance political forces, very weird, very American, very 20th century, hmm. doesn't seem relevant today. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Uh, where, do, where do I start? Um, uh, so, you know, in, in our, in our uh, progression, um, the 3DR, from uh, the technology to the consumer electronics to the tool, using, using drones as, as, as sensors, um, because of regulation, the regulation only allowed recreational use. So mm-hmm. the only way, you know, we couldn't do commercial use until last until September of last year. And so in between, the only way you could really, you know, get drones out there was on the shelves of Walmart. And um, hmm. and so we raised a lot of money and we spun up, uh, you know, outsourced manufacturing and consumer electronics and, you know, pr- perhaps the most complex consumer electronics device, you know, ever at, at, at that time. And um, we uh, decided to, you know, to, to do the, 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 the consumer, pack, you know, products, you know, th- thing right with distribution and marketing and distrib- you know, retail shelves and all that. Um, and we designed a good product, and we, um, you know, did everything right. Um, and um, that's when the prices fell by, by, by seventy percent in nine months. And, um, wow. and And we ended up, we ended up um, uh, with negative margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, pebble. Your, your uh, units cost love.
0: six, seven, eight hundred dollars to build.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, we were, so when we sold, when we started, the, the the going price for an advanced drone was about $1,600, $1, even more. Mm-hmm. And so you know, our, our bill of materials was about half that, which is appropriate. Wow. Um, by the time a couple months after we after we launched, the going price was below our bill of materials, and and wow. as of like about a year ago, it was down to about three hundred dollars. So um, so and what, these were not like these not being not, not like bad technologies. These
0: are it's, not toys. These are serious serious mm, things. Exactly. So so, what did you learn from that? What was the takeaway? I learned that, I mean, my instinct right now is that is that essentially it was
1: the universe telling me what what should have been obvious, which is that Silicon Valley should focus on software. Uh-huh. Um, China's extraordinarily good at hardware. The notion of advanced Silicon Valley cloud software running on Chinese hardware, which by the way, is your phone. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, is, is, is the way we should go. And it's kind of like, don't fight it. It's, you know, rather than build your own hardware, go find some brilliant company in China that's making the hardware and partner.
0: Um, uh, let them it. have all the costs and, and produce it at half. And every time I talk to, you know, a,
1: a, a new company in Silicon Valley that's doing hardware, they're like, yeah, we know that the hardware is commoditized and we know the Chinese, but we think we have five to seven years. And it's like, yeah, I said that, too. You got six months. You got six months. Right.
0: <laughs> um, what do you do to keep either mentally or physically fit? And what do you do to relax outside of the office?
1: Um, uh, so physically
0: fit. Um, I
1: just play tennis, mm-hmm. um, but I, I have uh, some of my dear friends and, and mentors are my tennis partners, and so tennis is not about the tennis. Right. It's about spending time with you know with 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 uh, with your friends you wouldn't otherwise schedule. Um, intellectually, I have I still have tons of tons of hobbies. And ten years ago, we did DIY drones. Now we're doing mm-hmm. DIY robocars cars and applying the same sort of grassroots, Bob. You know, you know, sort of like w- w- what if you made an autonomous car for a hundred dollars? Now it wouldn't mm-hmm. carry a person in the same way a drone doesn't carry a person. But it's the same. It's LiDAR, computer vision, neural networks, you know, Google Cloud software. And this is now
0: down to the DIY level. The the various... At one point in time, this was a... was it a DARPA contest? A DARPA, the, the, you know, the, the DARPA competition, the Grand Challenge,
1: et cetera. So this weekend, for example, we're going to be doing um, robot-to-robot, wheel-to-wheel autonomous car racing mm-hmm. in a in a huge warehouse, like semi-abandoned warehouse in, in Oakland, California. And then we're going to do robot versus human. Um, and this is not; these are not toys. I mean, they look like toys because they're like in a one tenth scale. But this exact same technology is in right. like, a Tesla or anything. They other. could scale
0: right up if they scale have scale
1: right up. It's basically using the same Google, you know, wow. neural network uh, stuff. But the cost of the the, the hardware itself is about hundred dollars, one hundred fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, we made it so it's fun. We made it so that uh, a student uh, could do it. And um, you know, it's dangerous. For the cars, but not for humans.
0: Right. These these are, they're truly autonomous. You basically, three, two, one, go. And There's one one just outside this room. We're going to have to take a look at that. Now I have to ask my final two questions. First, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just starting their career in either technology or journalism?
1: So you know, I have kids who are who are just going to college or or soon will local and, or uh, or elsewhere. No, they refuse to go locally in the same uh, way. they Why refuse did to I? Drones. Why
0: uh, did I knew that? No, yeah. that was the answer.
1: I mean, we live in Berkeley. You know, you see, you see, Berkeley is like one of the best schools in the world, but they just won't go to it. Um, well, I didn't get in either, but they didn't. <laughs> they didn't apply. They didn't, in fairness, they didn't apply. Um, uh, so um, you know, if you ask me what I was to, to study today. Um, I'm going to give you an answer which sounds boring, and then mm-hmm. we have to find a sexier way to sell it. The answer okay. is statistics. Probability and statistics are not it, boring at all. But it, it doesn't sound super compelling. So let's call it let's call it something a sexier.
0: Let's call it data science. I, I'm going to take it a step further. Probability and statistics is how you discern reality from falsity, truth from okay. nonsense. And, so sell and it to my 17-year-old. I can't tell you how often something comes along and you say, no, that's... You're giving me a sample set of two. Who cares? It's it's not. If you don't know that, you cannot identify reality. Uh, so my 17 year old is, uh, is trying to choose a major, mm-hmm.
1: and and you Barry Uncle Barry, as we'll call you for the purpose of this <laughs> argument, are going to convince my 17 year old to major in what you just said. Mm-hmm. S- sell it in a way that doesn't sound like spinach.
0: Well, what do you want to do with your life? What do you What are you interested in? how would you like to have a way to identify what's real and what's false in that? How would you like to be able to inject a truth serum into anything that takes place in meat space and some stuff that takes place in the virtual world and figure out if it's real or it's false? And And what if they say, it sounds hard, and is it even a job? Anything that's worth doing is hard, number one. And it's a job, but it's only a fabulous, paying, fascinating job. So if, if that's of interest, you know, uh, the ability to... And by the way, this is a well-established science. Many people have problems with it, but the ability to walk in and look at something and say, here's how we know their story is false based on this is an amazing, amazing thing. And, and I'm, a, I'm astonished more people don't recognize
1: it so, for what it is. So so the um, I agree with everything you just said. Um the way I ended up selling it was I said, well, okay. Um let's call it let's call it computer science and let's call it data science. So data science is basically computer science plus statistics mm-hmm. of, of various sorts. Um one of my one of my sons is at uh, North, Northwestern and um and he did economics or e- econometrics right. and computer science, which is another way to Huge much overlap are, between a, the huge two. Huge overlap. Sure. And so and so when you put econometrics and computer science together, if 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 the employers want to see that as data science, data science Great. it is. And that's a very hot profession You can get paid for that.
0: Sure, to say the least. Our final question before I make you late for your uh, next appointment, what is it that you know about technology, writing, journalism today? you wish you knew twenty five years ago?
1: I mean, I've been pretty lucky in being in the right place at the right time uh, throughout. Um, i um I've uh, sometimes being too early is, is bad as being wrong. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly been too early on on some things. Um, yeah, I uh, I think I might have... Um, so I could have moved to Silicon Valley sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, if I'd done so, I would have missed China. I would have missed being in China at the and moment And that's it a was cool emerging. thing to have experienced. And that was, that was cooler. I guess I would have... Um, I, the only time I regret is the time I spent in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. I was I was too long in Washington. I saw the world through kind of a political lens, and I wish I'd gotten out of there sooner. The you know I, I, here in Silicon Valley, D.C. feels a long way away. Governments seem not terribly uh, not as important as mm-hmm. markets, and even countries don't seem as important as as, as, as trade relationships. Mm-hmm. So I wish I'd traveled sooner.
0: We have been speaking with Chris Anderson, CEO of 3D Robotics, author of The Long Tail, and Makers, and Free. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on either Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and you could see our other 150 or so such uh, recordings. I would be remiss if I did not thank Michael Batnick, who helped prepare these questions, Chris Venn, who has been uh, my boy Friday on this trip. Uh, and Chris thank you so much for being so generous with your time i know you have other things and better places to do and be i'm Barry Ritholtz you're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio Masters in Business is brought to you by the American Arbitration Association Business disputes are inevitable. Resolve faster with the American Arbitration Association, the global leader in alternative dispute resolution for over 90 years. Learn more at ADR.org.